0: Working in sport is very different to working in, in business. You know, if a business goes out of business, it, it tends to be replaced. And we've all got the examples of blockbuster video stores and the rise of Netflix and how the economy and, and how businesses within the economy adapt and change. But there's a much greater emotional connection when you're working in sport. I mean, in many ways, we feel that we're the custodian of the emotional return on people who've got a real passion about rugby. So you always have to have that in balance, which is probably why we have a media profile, which is probably higher than that of the royal family. You know, And so you're making all of these decisions around league structures. You're making decisions about the team. You have a bad Six Nations, as we did this year. And people, it affects their lives in a much more direct manner than the performance of a a simple commercial entity is. And you've got to be conscious of that. If you can't deal with that, then you're probably in the wrong place.
1: Hi there, I'm James Ashton. This is Leading, the podcast where leaders discuss their biggest challenges, how they learn to lead and the advice they offer to the next generation. Today we ask, what's the key to success in sports leadership? How does the boss in the boardroom ensure winning performances on the pitch, mass participation and enjoyment? Leading is supported by Lockton, the world's largest privately owned independent insurance broker. Lockton's independence means its 8,000 associates worldwide are free to focus solely on their clients' risk and insurance needs. To hear more from Lockton experts, please visit locktoninternational.com gb insight. So to this episode, Bill Sweeney is chief executive of the RFU, rugby's governing body in England that oversees half a million regular players and strives for elite international success. We discuss bringing back the fans and steadying the finances in the wake of the COVID-19 close down, instilling a team ethic on athletes that brought back a record medals haul from the Rio Olympics in 2016 when he led the British Olympic Association and what he learned from working with Usain Bolt and the All Blacks during his time at Puma and Adidas. It's a great episode. I started by asking Bill whether leading the RFU was still the dream job he thought it was when he began in 2019.
0: Uh, yeah, that's true. It, it's, it's funny you raise that because we had this conversation uh, last week at a friend's house actually, and, and, and the question was asked in terms of God, you know, do you regret in any way going from the BOA? And, You've got Team GB getting ready to go to Tokyo now for the Olympics, albeit under different circumstances. Do you look back and think, was it the right thing to do? And uh, I can honestly say I have thought about it a bit, actually. If I knew then, over two years ago, what I know now, then I would still have done it. And uh, although it's probably been, it sort of falls into one of those categories of this has been incredibly difficult, frustrating. There have been dark moments along the way, but I wouldn't have missed it for the world. I think in some ways, when you go through a situation like this, you're forced to really understand and know the business from top to bottom, inside and out, in order to be able to manage the situation. So it's been tough, but no regrets on the move.
1: Because I don't want to boil down the success of the job or the success of RFU, but one of the things you absolutely need, I think, to succeed as I observe the organization, you need Twickenham full for England internationals, you need a roaring crowd. You know, you need to be functioning in that way. And, and without that, I guess it's pretty hard.
0: It is. I mean, our business model means that about 51% of our revenues come from ticketing and hospitality. And that's driven by a full house at Twickenham and, and fans coming in and doing what they do when they come in for match days and us being able to stage events. So when you take that away, and we were going to report you know, that this financial year 2020-21 was going to be a, a record financial year, probably you know, in excess of 200 million turnover. And it uh, will be more like 80 million turnover. So to lose 135 million of your turnover in, in a year and still be a going concern and manage through that, it's been a real challenge. But the team has really risen to that and has stepped up.
1: So what have you had to do differently? Because I suppose coming in, there are a few things. It's about getting elite performance. It's about when does England next win the World Cup? That seems to be one thing that's on your mind. And the other is about you know participation and the financial strength of the organisation. Am, am I right with those?
0: Yeah, there, there are various different components to this role, and it's, it's quite unusual when you work in sport because there are multiple different businesses within the business. So we're an events organiser, we're, we're the owner of a stadium, and that brings certain challenges with it in terms of health and safety and so on. We're a membership organisation, we have an obligation to something like 1,900 clubs around the country, So, and we, and we govern the game in terms of how that's managed. We're a commercial operation that own broadcast rights. So you have to function and act in a very contemporary modern way in terms of how you sell those market rights uh, and market those rights. And we're a high performance team that competes at the highest level of the sport on the international stage. So it's a combination of multiple different businesses all rolled up into one. I'd say that, you know, when this thing really hit in March of 2020, the first consideration was survival. You know, we didn't really know how long it was going to take. We didn't expect it to go on for this long and then uh, you enter into a, into a period of really high uncertainty, very difficult to predict, very difficult forecasts. You get into ultimate scenario plannings. You end up realizing that you're going to have to make some quite radical changes in order to get through it. So you go through that sort of survival phase to begin with. But at the same time, in parallel, you're running a team, that uh, men's and women's team, that are competing in international competition. So you've got to make sure that's OK. And you have a community game, which is not sure what's going on. And you have to try and provide as much certainty as you can in a very uncertain environment. So yeah, a range of different challenges really.
1: And so I think you said in the last annual report and you talk about those lost revenues, it will have ramifications for, for years to come. So I wonder what will happen differently in English rugby and how you've had to adapt your plan and your style of leading.
0: We've made changes to the organizational structure. Unfortunately, we had to do that. So we had to take a lot of cost out of the system. When you lose that amount of revenue in the short term, then then you have to respond in, in certain ways. So we had 119 redundancies in August of last year, which is very painful. You're losing colleagues who, frankly, are leaving the organization through no fault of their own in many cases, in most cases, really. So that was quite difficult. I think there's a huge number of positives, though, and silver linings to this whole situation. Our productivity has gone through the roof. I mean, within 24 hours, March the 23rd, we went into lockdown on that Monday. And um, almost immediately, you had to deal with an organisation that was working entirely remotely, 100% of the organisation working remotely. Nobody in Twickenham, apart from a skeleton staff, to look after the stadium. In 24 hours, we set up nine separate working groups that covered all the various different key aspects of the business, whether it be communications, financial, the engagement with government, you name it. But we, we brought it down to nine groups. And we realized very quickly that we couldn't over-communicate. So the number of calls per day to make sure everyone was checking in, see where we were, evaluating the situation. But that's led to a high degree of trust and delegation. I wasn't perhaps the greatest fan of working from home on a Friday. And I was always very cynical when people had food poisoning on a Monday morning. But I think what's happened now is that you have to delegate. And we're doing things differently. We're very much more outcome-driven, less process-driven more flexible. And those working practices will carry on when we get back to something like normality.
1: Sounds like you're trusting everyone a bit more.
0: That's exactly the right word. I mean, you uh, you can't do it all yourself. I perhaps was maybe a little bit more hands-on than maybe should have been or tended to be that way. You have to delegate. You have to trust people to get things done. You have to have more communication to make sure that everyone knows the direction we're all heading in and what their roles are to contribute towards that. But then you have to be hands off and, and trust people to get it done. And thankfully, I'd say virtually across the board, that's been the case for us. So it's, it's been a really good experience.
1: And what do the next couple of years look like as we try to get you know back to some sense of normality? There will be more games played, but those lost revenues don't replace themselves. So I guess that has to filter down into the investment decisions you take now and in the coming months.
0: We're in pretty good shape. I mean, we will still invest into the game more than any other union in the world. And we've made uh, the necessary adjustments to take down cost. It'll probably take us three to four years, I think, to get back to where we were previously. But we'll still be able to invest into the game in the way that we'd want to, albeit at slightly lower levels than that. We're actually in pretty good financial shape. A number of things have happened in the interim period, we had a debenture waiver program, which we to debenture holders and asked them to waive the long-term debt, which is 75 years out. And we had a very good positive law response to that. So we're actually in pretty good shape. The other thing that's happened is we've really got to know the community game well. We've had to interact with clubs and constituent bodies that run the game on a regional level around the country. And we've got a really good understanding of how the game is run. Not one single club has gone out of business during this pandemic. And that's quite remarkable when you consider there's 1,900 clubs out there. So the way they've managed their business, their ability to be self-sustaining has really given us a deeper understanding about our relationship with them. And that, again, I think be a major positive as we go forward into the years ahead.
1: What were you doing? Well, it sounds like you've been doing it in spite of the pandemic. You've been doing something to put the organization on a sound of financial Footing it's obviously characterized as well by what you did at the Olympic Association. Can you just talk a little bit about that? Because there are some people who sport, for the love of the game, shouldn't always mix with hard-nosed commercial decisions. But then, you know, looking at the way your organization works, it clearly has to.
0: Yeah, it has to be. I mean, the uh, commercial involvement and and money and finances are an integral part of sport these days. To compete at the highest level, you have to have the resources to invest into the team to maintain a successful and thriving game at the community level and support participation means you have to invest in programs to do that, and that takes money. So when you hear of broadcast deals being done and you hear about the debate between free to air and pay TV, you've got that continual kind of dilemma or balance there between: do you go for a higher audience rating with free to air? Or do you sell your rights for more money, but you know it's going behind a paywall and therefore you're restricting some of the viewership and you're you're having an impact there. But all of the money that we make is invested back into the game. We don't have shareholders, we don't pay dividends anywhere else, and we're a membership organization. So all of the money that we make is invested directly back into both the performance and the community game. So it's important to have a strong commercial and successful commercial operation in order for the game to be prosperous and for the game to continue to grow.
1: And how has the the pandemic, how do you think it will impact on elite performance over the next couple of years?
0: It's, it's been quite difficult with, with no crowds. I mean, we, maybe we underestimated the impact it has for players coming out into a stadium and there's no crowds there. I think in terms of elite performance, I don't think it'll impact elite performance practices and the pathway and how we prepare for competitions going forward. I think that will remain the same. I do think that we'll bounce back perhaps quicker than most people realise. I'm getting a sense, a real palpable sense of, some real latent desire to get back to watching matches. And you look at our ticket sales for next year, Six Nations already, they're, they're at a higher level at this stage in the calendar than they ever have been previously. So I think people are looking forward to getting back. I need to restore some trust and confidence in turning up and attending mass participation events, but uh, I'm confident that people will recover quickly.
1: It's like rushing to the shops or going to the pub, but far, far better.
0: Uh, yeah, definitely, much better.
1: Is there something in the air about, you know, how sports are organizing themselves how they're led some sports seem to be straining at the bit a little bit we've seen the um the football clubs trying to break away that didn't go particularly well i mean there is always that constant strain between the money and the fans you know a sort of i don't know authentic performance on the pitch if you like
0: working in sport is very different to working in in business you know if a business goes out of business it, it tends to be replaced and we've all got the examples of blockbuster video stores and the rise of Netflix and how the economy and, and how businesses within the economy adapt and change. But there's a much greater emotional connection when you're working in sport. I mean, in many ways, we feel that we're the custodian of the emotional return on people who've got a real passion about rugby. So you always have to have that in balance, which is probably why we have a media profile, which is probably higher than that of the royal family. You know, and So you, you're making all of these decisions around league structures. You're making decisions about the team. You have a bad Six Nations as we did this year. And people, it affects their lives in a much more direct manner than the performance of a a simple commercial entity is. And you've got to be conscious of that. If you can't deal with that, then you're probably in the wrong place. But there is always that need to get the balance between what do the fans want, what do the membership want, and what do you try to do to make sure your game is thriving and growing and moving in the right direction. And we're very conscious of that.
1: Well, I'm not sure about the analogy with the royal family, Bill. I think your patron might disagree (laughs) with that.
0: Well, I don't know. I mean, if you, if you matched up headlines and the footage, you'd probably find we probably have more of it all year round than they do. But that's part of it, isn't
1: it? More rugby headlines than Prince Harry. So what are the key things we should measure you on you know, a few years down the line? Is it about World Cup 23, 27? Is it about increasing? I think there are half a million regular players. Is it about getting more of those? Or is it is it a mix of things?
0: Yeah, it's all of those. It's all of the above, I think, at the heart of it. The community game is the lifeblood of the game. If you don't have a community game, you don't have players coming through. You don't have the pipeline of players coming through and playing for England. There are lots of examples out there. Australia is probably a good example. I know the Australian model quite well. After they hosted the World Cup in 2003, they had a very conscious policy of driving the game through the elite side only. So they believe that if you have a successful national side, that's enough. And that provides the inspiration, the aspiration that will drag along all of the participation. Pulls everybody up. I don't think you can rely just on that one lever and it hasn't worked for them. And rugby union Australia is now, I think it's about the fifth biggest sport in Australia now. So they're having to readdress that and they're changing their approach. And so they're, they're looking at how to invest much more and make sure they take care of the the grassroots game and the grassroots clubs in a much more direct way. And I think you have to have a balance of the both. You have to make sure that the community game is being protected. You have to make sure that you're making the game relevant and fit for today's society and the way society operates, which is very different from the way it used to be when I played. You know, you thought nothing of a three-hour coach ride to go and play a match and come back late on a Saturday night, Sunday morning or so. I think when you're in the community game now, there are a lot of other demands on your time in society. There are a lot of the different ways the way families and partners operate. So we're looking at how do you make sure that the way the game is structured in the community game is most relevant to today's society. So you have to take care of that piece. And then alongside that, of course, the performance of the national team really does matter. If you have a bad tournament, it affects how people view things. And I think it affects aspiration. And it's not acceptable, I don't think, for England to only have won one World Cup since it started. You know, a country of our size and resource and structure. We need to have better pathways in place. We need to have better succession planning in place. We need to identify better athletic talent around the country. And we should be consistently winning matches. I think a Rugby World Cup is probably one of the hardest tournaments in the world to win. You need a bit of luck. It's incredibly tense. You have seven matches to play in, in a relatively short period of time, and you're up against some really fierce competitions. But you have to maximise the probability of doing that, and we're very much focused on that as well.
1: Do you take that criticism on the chin, Bill? Because you can be held accountable for someone you know, fumbling a tackle, not getting something across the line on the pitch. I mean... At the end of the day, you can make all the decisions and have the strategy you want, but it's it's down to the guys on the pitch to score the tries and you know beat South Africa next time.
0: Yeah, that's true. But it's it's funny in sport. There's almost a, an element of it that you can't always explain rationally, and you almost make your own luck. When things are set up well, and you've got the right processes in place, and you are controlling the things you can control in a much better way the ball tends to bounce your way i mean it's a bit odd sometimes and you almost get a sense that you've done the right thing to feed the rugby gods and the rugby gods now rewarding you and you're winning matches and then you have a, a situation where there are such fine margins and we saw it this year you know decisions that go against you or the bounce of the ball goes against you or something just doesn't seem to feel right and i think you make your own luck as
1: you referred to it you play as an amateur i mean does doing the job ever come close to you know running down the
0: line which do you prefer those days are quite distant now, but I mean, <laughs> it would be it would be lovely to. I mean, if you ever had the opportunity to play at Twickenham, I think I sort of look back and think, oh wow, I wish I'd tried harder now. I wish I'd sort of pushed myself to go a little bit further in the game. But no, those, those playing days are gone. But it's it is a privilege to work in the sport that you're most passionate about. And you get some incredibly rare experiences that you wouldn't have if you weren't able to work in the sport.
1: Was it simply a point, you know, people make decisions about their careers as they go along? You know, I love this, but, you know, maybe I'm not going to make it an elite level. I've got to, you know, get on with Shell or Unilever and that's the way my career will go.
0: Uh, yeah, I started off in rugby. So I, I was I was growing up overseas, went, was sent back to boarding school, rugby playing school, played rugby from the age of 11. Parents came back, moved to a school in the south, which is a football playing school. So you then try to sort of make new friends through sports. So I ended up playing football. I wasn't mad on it, but I was actually reasonably good. So I ended up at Chelsea for a while. And there were thoughts then at that stage of, do you turn professional? That didn't happen. Then you go into your professional career and hence Shell and, and, and Unilever. But there did come a point for me where I thought there's a a limit to how excited I can get about fish fingers and frozen peas. There's a limit to how much passion you can really drive around that, although they are very passionate about it. And then I thought, well, actually, what do I love most? Well, I love sport. If I can work in sport and you can combine your professional life with your, your personal passions, then the chances are you might be quite good at it. So it was a conscious decision to get into sport. And initially, that was the business side of sport with the likes of Adidas and then moving across more administration with sports themselves and that was the BOA and then and then the RFU
1: and it, it's interesting to me having Written about some of these careers, so many CEOs have had that grounding in a, a fixed number of companies. Unilever comes up, you know, time and again. And I remember interviewing, you know, your chairman Andy Coslett several years ago, and he told me how character-forming it was to be selling ice cream to the corner shops of Liverpool in the depths of winter, so on. So, what is it you learn from from companies like that that makes you a, a potential leader thirty years down
0: the line? For me, and again, it was uh, uh, I really enjoyed Shell, but my background was more marketing, and the heartbeat of Shell was about engineering and finding oil and and getting it back to shore. So I wanted to be in the center of activity for a company, and therefore, if you like marketing, you like consumer brand aspects of business, then you really need to be in a consumer-facing company, and hence the desire to get into a company like Unilever. I think when you're at at Unilever, you, you realize, I think you can apply this to a lot of other aspects of communications and how you work in sport with a membership organization. You you can't force consumers to buy your product. You've got to understand what their needs are. You've got to know what they're after. And that takes research and that takes a gathering of the facts. And then once you know all the facts, you've got to apply a little bit of insight and a little bit of uh, instinct in terms of how does that work. So that was something that was always very big to me.
1: Were you in charge of people then or did that come later with Puma and Adidas?
0: It came a, li- a little bit at Unilever, but not much. But that came later with uh, actually British American tobacco for a while and then with Adidas and Puma.
1: Well, you you did what you said you wanted to do. You followed your passion. You got into the, the sports industry through the sportswear companies and the footwear companies. So kind of observing it from the flip side of where you are now. And at Puma, I think you looked after the relationship. Maybe you struck the relationship with Usain Bolt. And then prior to that, you were very closely linked to the All Blacks in your Adidas time. I'm just interested in what you get from being close to such fantastic elite performers.
0: Yeah, I mean, if you if you look at both of those, I mean, you Usain Bolt was a, a freak. <laughs> Strange situation at Puma where uh, Puma had repositioned itself more as a fashion brand as opposed to a, a sports performance brand. I've, I've lost touch on them a bit now, but I think they're trying to reverse that a bit and, and have, have stronger performance credentials in sport. But there you had the world's most marketable athlete and really they weren't doing much about him. They weren't using him in any way. He didn't even have a new pair of spikes for the uh, 2012 Olympics. So we then took a different approach and focused on him and built a program around commercializing and promoting Usain Bolt as an athlete to drive the brand. And that, that was really interesting. I think he was... Fascinating the sense of his ability to cross over into so many different areas. He wasn't just an athlete. His uh, presence in music, his transparency, and his accessibility on media was huge, and he was a fascinating guy to work with. And then you have the All Blacks, which unfortunately are the most successful rugby franchise in the world, and probably the most successful sporting franchise. And that there, I think, is all about culture. It's all about they talk about the jersey, they talk about leaving it in a better place, they talk about the pipeline of talent. I learned a lot from those interactions with them. It, it was a great experience.
1: I mean, are there things to learn from, I suppose, them being the top in sport and in their discipline, their chosen area? What transfers across into becoming the best business leader or arts leader or any other discipline?
0: I personally believe that culture and values are are really important. There's a lot of words written and spoken about culture and vision and direction and and so on. And and I think a lot of people feel it's a bit woolly and it's a bit sort of corporate jargony speak. But if you don't have a strong culture and you don't know what your values are, and you don't have a clear sense of your purpose and your your direction and vision, then you tend to go around in circles, you tend to be a bit rudderless. And so taking some of those lessons from sport and applying them across into business, I think are very valid and very valuable. The thing with sport is the results are so instantaneous. You you can be running a commercial business or a, a brand business, and people tend to stick their heads in the sand a little bit. Sales might be down for a period, and then you'll blame the weather or you'll blame something else, or you won't actually look inwardly at your own mistakes and whatever. In sport, you can't get away with it. If you lose, you lose, and it's across all the the headlines. So the results are instantaneous, and and your reactions and how you change things have got to respond to that.
1: Whereas in business, you don't quite know where to draw the line for legacy. I remember observing CEOs being clapped out of the building, and a year later, there's a profit warning and an accounting black hole, and it's a much longer, slower burn, isn't it?
0: Yeah, it can be. And I think things can be, if left unaddressed, they might not materialize for a few years to come. Whereas, again, as I said before, in sport, it tends to be instantaneous. You you know exactly how you're performing. And you're
1: there as a representative of the brand. I'm interested in what that relationship is like with some of these sports stars because I imagine they're quite blinkers on. They just got to focus on the track or the field or something. So if you can help them be that bit better, that's fine. But otherwise, it's a case of, You know, we need to set these commercial ideas aside for now.
0: Yeah, but there's a big difference, I think, between individual sports and individual athletes and team sports. I mean, if if go back to an example in Olympic world and Team GB, you have a swimmer like Adam Peaty. Well, in in Rio 2016, if I was a betting man, you'd have probably put everything on Adam Peaty winning gold. The only thing that would stop him would be a false start or some sort of problem. There's no one else getting in his way. There's no one else trying to tackle him. There's no ball that's bouncing around and you know with him that he's done all of his preparation. You see his preparation now leading up to Tokyo, and you've got that single-minded focus. Team sport's difficult, it's more difficult. You're bringing together a bunch of players from different backgrounds, different cultures, different club philosophies. You've got them for a limited period of time, and you're trying to build one cohesive team uh, unit to be able to go into uh, competition. This episode of
1: Leading is supported by Lockton.
0: We'll get back to the conversation shortly
1: but first here's Lockton's managing partner chris brown on the importance of developing your own leadership style certain core aspects of my leadership style are honesty which i think is really important giving respect to everyone in the organization trusting people encouraging people but also delegating and making sure that you provide clear expectations for anyone who you're asking to do something and whilst those expectations may be challenging that you also make sure that you know that those people can deliver on those challenging expectations i do think style is really important i'm a great believer in do unto others as you would have done to yourself to me that just goes to honesty as long as you are honest with yourself and are honest with your people then your style will be accepted I want to come on to the British Olympic Association, which you led from 2013. So you were at London, the 2012 Olympics, You're really with your Puma hat on and, and providing those spikes for, for Usain Bolt and so on. And then post-London 2012, you switched, as I said, from one side to the other. And suddenly, it looks suddenly in your CV anyway, very, very visible role. Bill, I'm quite interested in your thoughts about that because you you're not the guy from Puma. You're the front man for the BOA now.
0: Yeah, I was. I was fortunate there. I worked for uh, Seb Co. Lord Co. Pretty well known character, and I learned a lot from him. He was a very good mentor. What I learned from him was really about the importance of communications and messaging. And actually, it's how much you leave out as much as what you say and what you choose to say. So it was it was made relatively easy going into that kind of higher profile and greater focus with him there as as chairman. That was very helpful. But it was, again, I think when you work in sport and you're very passionate about it, it's your life, then talking about it becomes a much easier task.
1: And what was it like in 2013? Because, of course, there was that wonderful summer of sport that we just come through in 2012. Reading in the cuts, it looks like, obviously, because we we were not the home country anymore, there was a a slight downsizing of the organisation. Was there something about picking up the organisation? Was there any issue with morale that the best is behind us now when you came in?
0: Yeah, there was a massive challenge on that. The Olympics is, is the biggest show on the planet from a sports perspective and hosting Olympics and Olympics in your home city is a great opportunity, but it creates a huge amount of conflict and tension. There are more egos per square inch probably of a of when you're hosting a home Olympics than any other sport in the world. So everyone gets involved. Everyone's got a piece of it. Seb used to call it the glorification of the uninvolved. You know, everyone, uh, if it's going well, then uh, people claim an awful lot of credit for it. But it also creates a lot of tensions and a lot of conflict. And we were not in a good position after 2012. You'd think after those amazing games that the BOA would be financially strong. In fact, we were incredibly financially weak. There'd been a threatened lawsuit. There were issues in terms of relationships across various different stakeholders in the sport. So we weren't in a great position at that stage. And we had an organization that had downsized because obviously you're working with a smaller organization when you're not hosting. And the difficulty was: well, how do you top London 2012? So, two things that we did very quickly: one was to re-look at the brand of Team GB and what it stood for, and what it stands for, and its history, and what it is, and the fact it has no government funding, it stands at its own two feet. So, how could we tell bigger stories and more meaningful stories around that? But then we also needed to create a purpose, you know, what What were we looking to do post-London? And we came up with a phrase, which was, we're going to go and make history. We're going to be the first team ever to go and compete in the next Olympics and win more medals than we did when we hosted. And people really rallied to that. It was OK, ah, so we've got another purpose. It's not just about doing well in London 2012. And that became the rallying cry for about three years, which was go and make history. And we knew we had a strong team. All the various different sports rallied around that. The performance directors rallied around it. We created a really strong one-team identity around Team GB, despite the fact you have 28 sports, and everything went incredibly well for us in Rio, and hence the 67 medals there compared to the 65 in London.
1: Which you did, which I think is the first time a a host nation has increased their medal tally at the subsequent summer
0: games. Yeah, it was remarkable. It was absolutely remarkable. A really good bunch of athletes. They all supported each other, with probably about four or five days to go. Then it became apparent that if things went our way, we could beat China. And that would have meant coming second. So all of a sudden, actually, the mission shifted from more medals to we need to come second and and, and be behind the US. You have amazing scenes of professional golfers going along and cheering uh, along gymnasts and iconic cyclists cheering on a young gymnast aged 15 years old who got bronze in uh, her event there. So it was really a a pretty unique team spirit and, and collective team effort.
1: And that team spirit, it harks back to what you said about the All Blacks and culture. I think you've talked about this previously. You somehow got the big stars, the Andy Murrays and, you know, the big golf stars working in that same team on a par with, I don't know, the junior Taekwondo person or something. So how does that percolate down from the top? How do you do that?
0: We did a lot of work leading in, in terms of who we were, how we wanted to behave, respect the opposition, create the lasting legacy. Be mindful of how you want to be remembered. We did uh, a lot of sessions on the road with the various different sports in terms of the values around Team GB and how we saw Rio 2016 going. And I think the athletes, to their credit, just really bought into it very quickly and felt part of a bigger entity rather than just their individual sport. It was quite interesting, actually. Going into Rio, there was a bit of an issue with the Australian team where they had a a similar sort of one-team ethos but the swimmers took down the the one Australian team ethos and put up their own Australian swimming messaging. And you just got a sense that they weren't united and they, they didn't perform very well. But the Team GB athletes really rall- rallied around each other. They saw a greater purpose in terms of an overall really strong performance in Rio. And reacted very positively.
1: Obviously, the other thing I note about Rio 2016 is um, you had to contend with with Zika virus. What's your view on Tokyo coming up very soon with coronavirus? Should it go ahead?
0: I'm aware that uh, there's quite a high level now of uh, negativity from the public in Tokyo to the games. I mean, that generally tends to be just before games. One of the great points about the Tokyo Olympics was it was the highest ever public support figure. I think for going ahead with the games, I just feel desperately. Sorry for them. It's a country I know quite well. I lived there for a while. I got involved with, obviously, we had the World Cup there just recently as well in rugby. And apart from the financial aspects of hosting an Olympic Games, they were making comparisons to 1964. And in 1964, the Tokyo Olympics were about Japan emerging from post-Second World War, becoming an industrial powerhouse and really positioning the company that way. And I know that they were looking to this uh, Olympics in terms of showing the softer side of Japan, the human connection, more open society, greater transparency, more tolerance, and so on. And they were looking forward to really engaging with the world and showing the world what Japan's about. And they've been deprived of that now because you're not going to have fans traveling there. You just won't have the same exposure. So it'll become an Olympics where the athletes go in, perform, and go home. You won't have the interaction, which is so great. Around the Olympics, and I feel desperately sorry for them. I think it was a it's it's a tremendous shame. Should it go ahead? I think we've proven that you can handle elite sporting bubbles quite well. You can put the right protocols in place to, to manage that situation. It'll be a challenge there, because you've got multiple venues, you know, the sailing is somewhere else, the cycling is somewhere else, but at least you've got the containability of the athlete's village. So I, I, I would support the fact it's going ahead. It's just a great shame that they won't be able to, to really fully have the, the Olympic experience.
1: Yeah, I suppose every every games is unique for different reasons. You know, people remember them for, for different things, and this will probably be well. Depends. Depends what happens on the track and field, but it will. We probably know now what it will be remembered for.
0: Yeah, it'll be the quiet games, perhaps. Quiet,
1: <laughs> yes, not a title anyone any any host city would want. How has your management style, leadership style changed over the years, Bill?
0: I remember somebody saying to me a long time ago that you need to consider if you're quite good at sort of seeing something and and, and driving towards a goal, but you've got to remember you've got to take people with you. So I think now I I tend to look over my shoulder a bit more and make sure that, you know, have I got people with me? Have I explained the situation? Am I communicating effectively enough? I think that's changed. I think I'm a lot more trusting and I think that's even developed even further through COVID and this pandemic in terms of delegation and making sure you've got the right team around you. And if you've got the right people around you, you can achieve virtually anything. If you've got the right organisation, the right team, then, and I think we've shown that here, you can achieve virtually whatever you need to achieve. And do you still have a mentor, someone
1: external that helps you along, or are you, are you past that now?
0: There are a couple of people I refer to. There was a guy I used to work for at Reebok called John Jordan. John still lives in the US, a remarkable character. I think what I learned from him was the importance of attitude and positivity. And when you become a CEO, he was very much of the school of, You set the tone from the top down, and the CEO has a responsibility to be a bit of a role model. And I think, unfortunately, I don't think you can get away from that. And I can remember situations in the past where, at Unilever, actually, there was one managing director I worked for who was an absolute workaholic and even sort of slept in the office overnight on occasions and whatever. And that became the organizational culture. People worked long hours. They wanted to be seen to be working long hours. He then left. Another person came in, hugely talented. And um, was of the view if you can't get your job done between nine and five, five days a week, you're probably not good enough. So you need to sharpen up a bit. And almost overnight, the the, <laughs> the culture of the organisation changed into working a bit more savvy and not having to prove you were good by the number of hours you put in. So I think it is important, and I learned a lot from from John in terms of paying attention to that and making sure you don't lose sight of that. So I talk to him occasionally. He's very helpful. I'll dial in and and speak to him. But I also think I think from a mentoring point of view, I get a lot of mentoring. From my team. Uh, Maybe I don't tell them that, but I mean, through this COVID pandemic, strength of that team and and their capabilities and how good they are made you feel that I've got to really step up. I can't let them down. So actually, I get a lot of feedback. I get a lot of unconscious feedback from the people uh, I work with. Eddie's a good example. You know, uh, when you're working with Eddie, he's an absolute perfectionist. He's the ultimate competitor. He's always curious. He's always trying to learn and move forward. So it's actually quite interesting when you you can get your inspiration, or you can get your learnings from so, so it's maybe some strange sources.
1: And how do you relate to Eddie Jones? That interplay, I suppose he's running. He's running the team. You're running the organisation. So you both know when to step aside. Do you?
0: Yeah, definitely. And I, but I think the two need to be interlinked. I think it's quite dangerous if if one becomes entirely separated from the other. But yeah, you know, he's the head coach. He has to make the decisions on the team and the selection, and that's probably his biggest challenge: is uh, who do you select when you've got such a wide range of people to select from. So you put structures in place and you give him all the support necessary to enable him to do his job. But at the end of the day, he makes that choice and he gets judged on performances on the field of play. And that's, that's really how it should be.
1: I'm interested in Six Nations now, and, the, and we've talked a lot about you know commercial and so on. The addition of CVC, it's an organisation that, that some people, it causes them to have an intake of breath. You know, CVC coming into a sport. What do you think, what would you say to fans? Is this only something that can, that can improve the game or will they not see any difference on the pitch?
0: We considered this move really carefully, and although Six Nations uh, Venture and you've got the other five nations involved in that, then we had to prove to our membership, we had to prove to the RFU Council, we had to prove to the RFU Board that we were doing it for the right reasons, and it wasn't just about a cash injection. And that's not really the sole purpose. So without going into all the details of it, what we've created there is is a new co, which is the consolidated broadcast rights of the Six Nations for the Six Nations and and the Autumn Internationals. And uh, CVC will effectively be a seventh partner in that, thereby having a 14.3% share of that broadcast vehicle, if you like. Now, our broadcast revenues are 30% of our overall revenues. So what we've got exposed there is is less than 5%, if you think of that. So we're giving up 14.3% of 30%. And because it's purely around the broadcast rights, they're not buying into or getting any control over the regulatory side of the game. So anything to do with the calendar or the fixture list or tournament uh, structures, you know, they, they don't have a, a a majority or a controlling vote on that. Now, rugby, as most people realise, is <laughs> it's probably one of the most political sports in the world, I think, probably more political than the Olympics. And you go back to 1995, and when the game went professional, and there has been a tendency for rugby to get into some self-destructive behaviour, whether it's between club and country, whether it's between Northern Hemisphere, Southern Hemisphere, we actually think the arrival of something like CVC, who's Sole interest, really, is about value creation. But if the creation of value aligns with other objectives around the structure of the game, the two go hand in hand, we think having them involved would actually help us get to a better solution quicker and help uh, the various different stakeholders around the table to to operate more closely together. So we do see this as being a very positive move. I mean, you'd, you'd expect me to say that. Otherwise, we wouldn't have done it. But uh, I, I think I think it's a very important moment in in the history of the game.
1: It's almost like a financial referee because there are there's a third party interest that says you know they almost come in and bang heads together.
0: Yeah, it's not their style actually. They're they're a lot more uh, less banging heads together, but more collaborative and actually showing the benefits of cooperation. So the fact that they have a, a percentage, of twenty seven percent ownership of premiership rugby 28 percent ownership of pro 14 this deal goes through the 14.3 percent ownership of that uh, broadcast vehicle within six nations yeah we sit around the table if i was having a conversation purely with the premiership club owners there is no referee so therefore it's quite easy for that to perhaps go into territory you don't want it to go to but having a third party there who have a stated interest which is to create more value into the game which is value that we will reinvest back into the game to help it grow I think that leads to a much more constructive conversation.
1: And we and we digress, but I suppose just as a financial journalist, I see, you know, all those different angles they've got. I just wonder how they get their money out. I mean, that that is always the thing that a private equity group has in mind when they put the money in. So, you know, six nations, for example, how do you crystallize 14% when you have six other, you know, normally you sell on the venture, but clearly there are unless something radical happens there are six members organizations who would never do that
0: i think rugby is is perhaps one of the most underleveraged sports in the world i mean it's a global sport it needs to grow more uh, we need to develop the tier 2 nations further we need to have more competition there the women's game is growing at an incredible rate really strong rate in, in england and uh, and and also in france and new zealand and other countries are are stepping up now as well it's a bit dysfunctional as a sport globally and at the core of all that is the global calendar And the one thing you can't do in rugby, which you can do in other sports, is you cannot add matches. So when it comes to player welfare and the number of matches that the international players and and best club players can play because of the physicality, you can't do that. So the mantra, the driving mantra really is to sort out the global calendar, sort out the competition structures, minimise the overlap between club and country and actually drive more revenue from less games. So it's a case of how do you drive more revenue from playing less matches and make it simpler and more appealing for the consumer? And when you do that, all of those various investments for them will in- will increase. They can probably consolidate them and sell it off as one vehicle or not or whatever.
1: Uh, when you said leverage, I thought oh they just put they just pile on some debt bill, which is what private equity normally does. But I think you meant the other sort of leverage.
0: Yeah, no, sorry, I mean I mean under
1: underexposed. Yes. So so back to you. What what else? What haven't I asked about? You know your style or who you mentor and what you know what you say to the next generation, the next you know, people who are, you know, 20, 30 years behind you who who want to um scale the heights as well.
0: I believe it's it's critically important to do something that you enjoy doing and feel passionate about. It was a conscious decision to to go into, into sport initially. My reasoning and rationale behind that was, well, if you enjoy what you're doing and you're not waking up on a Monday morning thinking, oh, this is this is just another job, the chances are you'll be quite good at it because it becomes your passion. And if you're quite good at it, then hopefully you get recognized and your career progresses. And it might seem like an obvious statement, but I think the finding something that really excites you or and, and you feel you can dedicate an awful lot of time to. Because let's face it, the amount of time you spend and your working life is huge over the course of a lifetime. If you work in sport, it's even more because your weekends are consumed by it. Your, your friends are consumed by it. Your social life is driven by it and everything. So find something that you're passionate about, you enjoy doing, and the chances are you, you'll do quite well.
1: And it must be in a, in a way you can never leave it. I suppose, as you say, it follows you from Monday to Friday to the weekend, and it's almost like running something like an M&S, or it, it's an organisation. Everyone has a view.
0: Yeah, definitely. And you, you see it in in other aspects in in other businesses. You know, everyone has a view on the on the colour of a running shoe. Everyone's a, an immediate designer when it comes to sportswear. In rugby, everyone is an expert on selection and who should be playing and who shouldn't be playing. And and with hindsight, life is very easy, isn't it? But I think also I think an important thing to do, and maybe this comes with age a little bit as well, is keep things in perspective. Will people still be having discussions about the six nations this year and the selection process this year in five years' time? And if we win a World Cup in France, you know, those conversations will be will be gone. And if we don't, there'll be a new set of conversations. So I think you just gotta keep it in perspective and keep things in balance.
1: Thanks so much for talking, Bill. Great conversation.
0: Thanks, James. Enjoy that.
1: thanks for listening to this episode of Leading with James Ashton. Please rate and review us if you like what you've heard. For more sports leaders, you can dive into the Leading Archive to hear Jack Buckner from British Swimming and Nick Pearson from Parkrun. This episode was supported by Lockton, a global independent insurance broker whose people have the freedom to think and act in the best interests of their clients. For more details, go to locktoninternational.com slash gb insight. And of course, check out leadingpod.com. More episodes coming soon.